Welcome to TBA Now. I'm Keith Stern, the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah. I am blessed to know the many extraordinary people who are connected to our congregational community. This podcast is an opportunity to get to know who they are and what they do. Come listen. Susan Reddick's life fell into chaos on 9-11. Her husband David was killed when the first plane crashed into the World Trade Center. Life for Susan, her two young children, and her unborn baby would never be the same. Since that darkest day, Susan has transformed her life with resilience and integrity. Come hear her very moving story. Susan Reddick, welcome to TBA Now. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. Susan Reddick is a dynamic force of nature. She is assertive. She is kind. She is no nonsense. Her sense of humor and her physical presence, all of this combines into making her one extraordinary person. Thank you. What an incredible introduction. I've never gotten one like that. And I, I love it. So I appreciate that. Thank <laughs> I'll, you. I'll just keep going then. No, yeah, so, no I'll <laughs> own all of those things. <laughs> well, one of the extraordinary things about you is your integrity and that you really have always made it part of your life to uh, take responsibility for who and what you are. And I think in a way that's the theme of our podcast today, which is essentially to hear something of your story and to measure your trajectory over the past 20 years uh, when you first joined Temple Beth Avoda. So, you know, I'm, I've gotten really into astrophysics recently and uh, the principles involved. And one of the primary truths of life and the universe is that everything moves towards disorder. And I thought that was ironic in thinking about you and what you've done, because really, frankly, from 9-11, everything pretty much that was part of your life went into complete disorder and chaos. And since that point, there have been several steps that you've taken that have actually led you towards order. And thinking about that, I wanted to explore some of those steps, how you think about them and how they've come to shape who you are today. I'm curious, as you think back to the days right after 9-11, how it was you were able to begin putting your life, I wouldn't even say together again, putting your life together in this new world of yours. I love the thing you said about astrophysics, that everything is moving towards uh, disorder. And what came up for me when you said that is, I think that on 9-11, you know, Dave's, Dave was on the 
first flight, American Airlines Flight 11, to hit the World Trade Center. And in that instant, you know, the plane blew up, our lives basically blew up. I kind of think of it in that way. However, and so there was disorder, totally. And what I am able to recognize now, 20 years later, which I, I think I s- had a sense of even back then, is as much as there was disorder, there was also a constant. I had lots of constants in my life. I had family. I had friends. I had support systems. I had an education. I had money. I had lots of things that enabled like a lot of things to sort of stay the same. And so even though there was total disorder in certain like huge ways, my foundation was really rock solid. And I think that's part of what enabled me and the family to kind of move through wherever it is we now are. You had the enormous luck to have an amazing support system and that you were not left uh, entirely in the lurch, that there was structure and there was uh, backup all along the way. Mm -hmm. I remember speaking to a therapist uh, not long after 9-11, who said to me, you know, if your husband had been killed by like a drunk driver, you could get active in something like mad, you know, mothers against drunk driving. But, you know, there's nothing for you to get behind. I look back and I think oftentimes as a result of tragedy, that's when amazing ideas and passion and projects come into play because your eyes get opened in a whole different way. And also, channeling your grief towards something outside yourself. It was incredibly helpful for me. So not long after 9-11, I co-founded a nonprofit called Beyond the 11th. And our mission is to empower and support Afghan widows. And I got to that place because I recognized we had so much over here compared to what these women who I considered my counterparts had and continue to have over in Afghanistan. The terrorists who, you know, flew the planes into the buildings, they all trained in Afghanistan. They were able to do so because their country was a mess. But I consider like the women over there have been terrorized for so many years. I didn't set out to create, you know, a nonprofit to help thousands of women and their children over the course of 20 years or whatever it is we're into. It really started with the idea of just let me reach out to one woman. Let me just reach out and just get a sense of like, why do they hate? Like I had so many questions. Why, why did they hate us? Why did this happen? Who are you? And I, I figured like, who better to speak with than another woman who could potentially relate? That never really panned out. That's not what Beyond the 11th came to be. It wasn't so easy to have those conversations we did have an opportunity to go uh, one time to Afghanistan back in 2006. And the women that we met with, I remember they had no idea what 9-11 was in the sense of what really happened. I remember one of them saying like, oh, we thought it, a plane hit a building that was maybe five stories high. So like their understanding of the magnitude, they had no way of even knowing because they're not seeing the images on TV the same way that we are. They don't have skyscrapers that are over a hundred floors tall. So their idea of big is five stories. So you went to Afghanistan in 2006, as you said, how the hell did you figure out how to do that? And, and what were the issues you had to deal with like 
security? Like, where were you going to stay? How hard was that to arrange? Great question. So when we went to Afghanistan in 2006, we had already become a part of a documentary that Beth Murphy from Principal Pictures was creating. She had gotten in touch with me and Patty Quigley, who's my co-founder, back in 2004. I remember the call. She was asking, you know, we met, you know, on the phone and she said she wanted to do a documentary of our work. And I remember thinking like, we hadn't raised money yet. We hadn't made a grant. Like, what are you going to what are you going to be documenting? Like me making dinner for the kids? I, I was like, but she had, an, she had a vision. And the reason I'm bringing her up is we had always talked about going to Afghanistan and I was really nervous about it. And so I kept putting the brakes on it. And I think Patty was probably more comfortable. I don't know if that's the right word, doing it. And I really was way more reluctant. And so we basically said we weren't going to go, not to make it too complicated, but not too long before we went, one of the women who worked on one of the grant, uh, one of the projects that we had been funding had been targeted and kidnapped. And so having, and she was safe and she was, she ended up being safe, but knowing that that existed, it just, it just felt so scary to me. But anyway, Patty Murphy of Principal Pictures decided to go without us. And before she left, you know, maybe a month before she had made all of the arrangements, she emailed me and Patty and said, these are all the arrangements. I just want to make you aware. And so Patty and I, I remember we like picked up the phone and called each other and I was like, wait, do you want to go? She's like, I think so. Do you want to go? And we just had that back and forth. But it made it so much easier because I didn't have to think about anything you just mentioned. So I didn't have to worry about what flight I was going to take or what she even told us like what shots we would need to have. And she provided, you know, security for us and handled every aspect of it, which made it incredibly easy. And we ended up traveling with some people from Care International, which was one of the organizations which we had made a grant to. And so we got really lucky that we didn't have to plan all of the details. We just kind of got to go along for the ride. Was it a completely mind-blowing experience for you? It was. I mean, I've talked about this, that I learned so much and I felt a connection with these people and I felt like an alien, like I felt everything you could imagine. And on some level, I also was able to appreciate there's so few times in our life where we actually get to step outside of who we are on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's why we all love travel and vacations and because you're, you're stepping out of your normal kind of boring routine. And this was like that on steroids. You know, I got to go to Afghanistan. It was an incredible experience just on so many levels. Yeah. And I feel so fortunate that we had that opportunity. What's it been like for you watching the news, the whole sudden collapse of Afghanistan as a nation taken over again by the Taliban? What has that been like for you to watch? Really devastating. Really, really devastating. We're still so in the infancy of where we are now. So I'm not exactly, I don't, no one knows for sure what's going to, how it's going to play out in the next you know, six months, year, five years. I'm somewhat optimistic that it's not going to be like it was pre 9-11. I don't 
my gut is it's not going to go to as extreme as it was. However, the lives of women and girls, I don't see it being what it could have been had Kabul not collapsed. Such a profound disappointment. It's really upsetting. I mean, I'm working with Beth Murphy to some degree. Beth is working around the clock to help get some of the Afghans out of uh, Afghanistan here and come here to the United States. We're trying to rent, uh, trying to charter a flight to get 300 Afghans out. So how does Beyond the 11th dovetail with that? And uh, if it does, and then what other, what's the charter of the organization at this point? So it's a great question. I think of what's happening in Afghanistan in three ways. The first is how can we affect those that are needing to escape right now. So even though it's not been the mission of Beyond the 11th up until now, I just feel because we do have some resources, we have to put some money towards that. And so we're doing that. The second piece is to continue long-term programs in Afghanistan that support widows and and their children. I'm not sure exactly what that's going to look like going forward. Um, the grants that we have in place currently are actually still going. They haven't been halted. So that feels amazingly good. That's the second part. And then the third part is not beyond the 11th, but it's just us personally. Um, Donald and I have committed to sponsoring an Afghan family to come to the United States um, on what's called a humanitarian parole. Each uh, Afghan who wants to come to the United States in order to do so needs somebody to sponsor them. And we've decided to do that. So for a family of five. So we're in the process of making that happen. What does that mean? What are the practical implications of being a sponsor? So my understanding is the humanitarian parole is a program that allows them to come here for two years. Where we come in as sponsors is they're not allowed to use any government funding, funded assistance. So no food stamps or any kind of government assistance, anything, welfare, nothing. And so we're saying if, even though they're not legally allowed to, if they were to get assistance, we would be on the hook for that. I don't know exactly how it's all going to work out, but I'm (laughs) hopeful that we can work with different refugee resettlement programs to help make sure that they have what they need, shelter and food and clothing. There's a chance that they'll be coming to Lowell, uh, which is obviously not too far. And I love the idea of getting to know them and being able to support them in whatever way we can. Part of Beyond the 11th is a bike ride. Would you tell us how that all started? Beyond the Bike is Beyond the 11th signature fundraiser. We don't do it every year, but we've done it seven times. It's a bike ride where we leave from Ground Zero in New York City and ride three days, a total of 250 miles, and we end here in Boston. And so we just completed a bike ride back in September, September 10th, 11th, and 12th. And it was amazing. We had 40 riders, four of which were me and Donald and two of our children, Ben and Dina Road, and Molly and Rebecca, our other two children, helped with support. That was the first time all six of us ever did the ride together. And so that was amazing. And It came to be because Patty threw it out all those years ago, back in like 2003, because our first ride was in 2004. She had been living in California before she moved to Boston, and they had a lot of spinning, and she did it. She threw it out. 
And it didn't scare me enough to say no. It seemed like an exciting adventure. And so neither of us owned bikes. Neither of us had ever done anything like that. And so we went to Belmont Wheelworks and bought a bike and those clip-in shoes. And it changed my life because the biking community is an incredible group of people. And uh, I feel really fortunate to be a part of it. Yeah. there were, uh, The picture of your most recent... Uh excursion that uh, there's, I looked at the group and a few of them I recognize and they are very hardcore bikers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a really amazing kind community. What has it been like to watch your kids grow up in a climate of so much talk about 9-11, so, so much. And I'm wondering how have they learned to cope with all of that, both serious dialogue and coverage and lots and lots of static and insanity and 9-11 conspiracies and so forth? I, I just wonder watching, and, and I might say, and I just will put it out there, I'm, I'm not objective, uh, but that you have four extraordinary children uh, and it's been a pleasure to watch them grow up. But I'm wondering from their mom watching them grow up, how have they coped with all this moving into the world as they do? It would maybe come as a surprise that as much as 9-11, you know, we were the 9-11 family. We still are. We're the 9-11 family. You know, there aren't that many of us in Massachusetts and, you know, within this community. So that's our title. It's such a big part of who we are. And yet so much of my focus was on Beyond the 11th. And so believe it or not, we didn't talk about 9-11 all that much. And I remember a child therapist told us very early on, remember our kids were four, two, and zero when Dave was killed, to say the advice was always tell the truth and don't answer questions that weren't asked. So like, you don't have to give all the information when they're ready to ask the questions, which they will, be honest. And what we found was the kids really didn't ask a lot of questions because they were so young. Yeah. And then it was like this weird thing because- it had been such a like a, a blanket over our lives. It's like, when's the day that you ask some big question? Well, what happened on the plane? Like, no one's ever asked me that to this day. And now, obviously, there's so much information out there on the internet. I don't know what they've Googled. I don't know what they've researched for themselves. But we don't talk about it probably as much as people would imagine, or maybe we should have. I recently saw your daughter, Dina, on... PBS uh, in a documentary as the filmmaker uh, talked to kids whose dads had died on 9-11 while they were, before they were born. I wondered how Dina felt being included uh, with all these other kids and wondering, is there some quiet fraternity sorority of such people? Was it, or does everyone, as you're suggesting, everyone has kind of found their own way through this. So Dina chose to be a part of that documentary. It's called Generation 9-11. And I was a little surprised actually that she chose to be a part of it. And once she said yes, you could see she was super excited to be a part of it. 
And I think it's because she was ready to explore some of her own feelings around mm-hmm. 9-11, the loss of her dad, what it means to be a 9-11 family, all of that, which, yeah, I think she was excited to explore and this seemed like a, a way to do it. I don't think there is a community, or if there is, we're not a part of it, of the kids being able to lean on one another of these families. Had it not been COVID, I they would have gotten all those kids together. I know, you know, they said that's normally what they would have done, but they weren't able yeah. to because of COVID. So I watched that documentary and I thought, oh, Dina would be friends with her. Dina would be friends with him. Oh, <laughs> you should reach out. You know, she's an adult. She's got to figure it out for herself or yeah. somewhat of an adult. But I thought it was interesting that a lot of the young people in that documentary seem to have similar experiences as we did. It was validating or something. Did anything specifically resonate? I was surprised kind of how they mentioned, you know, not everybody talked about 9-11 in the same way. Like it wasn't, even though it's ever present, it kind of also wasn't talked about in a, in a way. That struck me. And, and, and the contrast is how much a part of American culture it's become as the anniversary arrives you're obviously aware of the fact that it's going to be in terms of publicity and social media a huge deal um is there do you have a need to be sort of preparing yourself psychically for this and if so what are you telling yourself yeah i definitely had to prepare I- I'm always a mess before 9-11. Donald, you know, my husband knows to kind of give me space before. And this was so much more intense than I ever remember any of the other anniversaries being. And I'm not sure why they may have been for the 5th and the 10th. I just can't recall. But I felt like there was so much planning ahead by news organizations that so many people were reaching out to us. And I was really, really conflicted because if it were just about me, a hundred percent, I would say not interested. And I did say I wasn't interested for like 99.9% of the um, journalists who reached out to me. But my being conflicted is I recognize that the work of Beyond the 11th is so important and it's not... I don't have that many opportunities to have the ear of journalists. And so I feel an obligation to use my voice to help the, this, these women. And so I want to shut down and hide and not be seen. And I feel an obligation. And so it's a really tricky dance. How did you decide who you were going to talk to? So... Some of it's a little random in terms of who hits me the right way. You know, it, it was from all over the world. So if I'd never heard of the heard of them, I'm not. I said no because I didn't. I don't want to like accidentally, you know, get associated with like the National Enquirer of Brazil, let's say. So <laughs> some of that was really easy. Yeah. Um, you know, I had a, a journalist reach out from a very prestigious newspaper. I will just leave it at that. And I thought, oh, this is great. We'll have a wonderful conversation. And in the very beginning, I had a sense it wasn't going where I wanted. So I said, what's the, before we get going, like, what's the theme of your, of your article? And she basically said, oh, I just want to know what object or thing do you carry with you 
that was Dave's that you lean on for these past 20 years? And I was like, eh, <laughs> Wrong question. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, really. And I was like, this is yeah. not going to be the right. So I said, no. Yeah. But then like I did a, a really nice article for the Philadelphia Inquirer. I grew up in Philadelphia. And when he reached out, I was I went online and I realized that he had interviewed me many years ago, I think for the 10th anniversary. And mm. that journalist was still there and he had done a really good interview the first time. And I he cares about the world and what's happening in Afghanistan. So it wasn't like a puff piece. <laughs> and he wrote a beautiful article for the 20th anniversary. So I felt really good about that. Well, I'm sure your parents were very proud of you. <laughs> you talking to the town paper. How are you folks doing? They're doing okay. They moved to Florida during COVID. Um, you know, some health issues, but for the most part, they're doing well. Um, my parents are, uh, I'm going to get teary. The thing that they do better than anybody I've ever met is I can't talk to them without them saying, Oh, we're so lucky. Oh, it's so beautiful here. Oh, we just took a walk and saw this person. Oh, the dog is this. Oh, the house is that. Everything is seen. They look at all the blessings and they say them out loud to one another and they say them out loud to us. And it is mm. such a beautiful example of how to move through life. And how essential has that been to your own understanding of the world? I don't know that I'm able to do it to the degree that they do. But it's hard to hang up the phone with them and not look forward in your own home or in your own world. And so I'm lucky that I get to talk to them very often. And so it just yeah. is a continued, continuous reminder of look at what you do have, not what you don't. What a great blessing to have in your life. So uh, it's like someone holds up a lens sometimes to remind you. So tell us about your husband. Tell us about Donald. So Donald and I met on J-Date, and normally I have to explain to people what J-Date is. I have to say it's the thejewishmatch.com, but I'm assuming that your audience is already going to know what J-Date is. I think so. <laughs> um, so yeah, we met you know, a, a long time ago, and it's actually funny. We were on J-Date, and he had uh, reached out to me, and the first time I was actually home visiting my parents in Philadelphia during Thanksgiving, and this was back in the day of dial-up internet or whatever it's called. And the connection was so bad. It was like, I couldn't even respond. Like it was all so annoying. And so I sent him a message saying, let's just connect when I get home in Boston. And then I didn't connect because that's just where I was back in that time. I think it was in and. Four. I can't even remember. And so I just wasn't really in a place to be dating, but I was just on it because it was just like a distraction. And about a year later, almost a year to the day, I decided, okay, I'm going to start dating. Like I'm going to be intentional about who I want to go out with instead of just waiting for somebody to come to me. And so I saw Donald on J-Date without realizing we had already communicated. And that sounds really silly, but if you're on any of these websites, for those of you who do that, <laughs> it's all the same faces all over and over and over again. And so like, I knew I recognized the face. I just didn't realize we had actually communicated. And so we just had a really funny exchange about how I had blown him off without realizing it. But anyway, so we ended up going out and he always laughs that on our very first date, I had allotted him like 20 minutes because I was like, I'm going to know right away. <laughs> 
<laughs> he thought that was funny. <laughs> and did you know right away? I did. I knew that he was he was special, and uh, he has a kindness about him. He's a really good listener. Um, he cares about people in the world, and in many ways, he's very different than Dave. But in the most important ways, he's the same. It just has really strong, good values, and he lives by them. And he he works on being the best version of himself. And I am incredibly impressed by that. You know, I have to say, it's impressive that he walked towards you when you did not exactly come without strings. Well, he jokes that when uh, he had done a lot of dating on J-Date, and so he decided instead of putting, you know, the criteria as like, you know, 20-something-year-old single, blah, 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 he put in widow with three kids and I was the only one who came up. (laughs) So, you know... Classic. <laughs> As you were describing, Donald, I, I thought about this phrase, you know, working to be the best person uh, that you can be. And I wonder if we could segue a bit from that to the work you're doing now um, in leadership coaching, because it would seem to me in a way that what you described as your husband attempting to do is, I, I would think, one of the essential pieces of being a leader, um, which is authenticity and integrity. How did you end up doing this coaching and why? There are lots of different ways I got to it. But one of the funny ways that I like to talk about is I was uh, on the phone talking to my good friend who was actually a temple member. And uh, this was many years ago. And we were on the phone and I was saying, I want to start a business where I just tell people what to do. Like, I just want to solve their problems. I'm such a big problem solver. Like I see things and I'm like, why don't you just do it this way? I, I can help. And she said, I think that's what a coach does. I was like, really? There's like an actual profession for this. <laughs> and so I signed up uh, at uh, CTI, Coactive Training Institute, which is the world's largest coaching uh, training school. And within like the first five minutes of my first class, I learned that coaching is not solving people's problems and telling them what to do, but I fell in love with what it actually is, which is helping people to uh, figure out their own answers by asking really powerful questions, having them come to the answers themselves. And I absolutely love going on the journey with them and being witness to transformation. And I fall in love with all my clients like within 10 minutes. And I think part of it is that I'm able to see myself in all of their struggles in to some degree, as well as their joys and their greatest accomplishments. And so I, I'm like, I don't know, it's so personal. And I, I feel so blessed to have found this. And not only am I a coach to individuals, I actually now am on the faculty of CTI where I took my courses and I get to teach other people how to become a coach. How and exciting. I absolutely love, 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 love that. Susan, wh- when did you begin the work? I got certified in 2015. And so you have to take clients while you're getting certified. That's part of it because you have like supervision type thing. So it was sometime during 2015. And then I was really real in maybe 2016. Okay. So you have a bit of a chunk of time having done this. Mm -hmm. I'm curious how COVID altered the landscape for your work and for the people that you were coaching. Not as much as you would think. People's issues are the same. 
the themes are are the same. I think what I noticed is people's loneliness may have increased. <laughs> and so, you know, those themes of how do you be intentional about incorporating the important things in your life? Because I just believe we all, it's so easy to live on autopilot and our brains are set up to do so to, to in many ways to help us survive. But it's our job if we want to live ourselves our best life to make sure that we continue to pause constantly and reevaluate, am I where I want to be? And if not, what do I want to choose? It's all one big choice. As we come back to the beginning in terms of the notion of the uh, universe and moving towards disorder and the attempt to valiantly kind of make our way through, what are the next few years look like for you in terms of your work, mm. in terms of your life? I feel like friends of mine are starting to wind down with some of their work and switching careers or like looking to retire. And I feel like I'm just getting started in a way. I, uh, I will be continuing the work of Beyond the 11th. And I'm, like I said earlier, I'm not sure what that's going to look like come five years from now. But I know the need will continue and we'll continue to raise money and make grants to NGOs that I'm sure will continue on the ground um, in Afghanistan doing the hard work. So I'm sure we'll continue that. And then my coaching, it's evolved a lot just in the last few years. I've started incorporating some couples coaching as well as team coaching, and I really enjoy that. I feel incredibly fortunate that I am able to do so many different, I call them like buckets of things in my life. I don't think I could live any other way. And I love all my buckets. I'm so lucky. <laughs> and then part of that is my family, right? So I've got Donald, I've got the kids there who are growing up, which is just, I mean, you've got kids. It's crazy to, to witness this change and they teach me so much. Like that's all seems so new to me, you know, that yeah. like roles are reversing and they're teaching me about God so much in the world. <laughs> What's the age range of your kids? 24, 22, 20, and uh, 13. I just uh, would like to reiterate how so happy I am that you let us into your life and did this podcast and the gratitude I feel that you and your family have continued to be part of the Beth Avodah community. Your daughter, Rebecca's uh, bat mitzvah, uh, in the midst of COVID was its own unique balancing act. And it was a tough dance, but speaking of <laughs> everything's moving to disorder, but it, it happened. And to celebrate Simcha with you was a joy. And I thank you so much for being on TBA Now. Thank you. This was my first podcast. This was lovely. Thank you. You are so welcome. Find all of our episodes on BethAvodah.org or on podcast sites everywhere. Thank you.